Welcome to the American Landman Podcast, where we discuss buying, managing, and selling American land. Join us as we listen to real people who buy real land for the enjoyment of owning land and as a vehicle to financial freedom. And now, your host, the original American Landman, Neil Hogger. And welcome to this week's episode of the American Landman. I'm your host, Neil Hogger, land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate. And this is the American Landman podcast where we talk about buying, managing, and selling American land. Well, today is a day that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. And I'm going to try not to get too emotional here, but and I won't take a long time. Uh, but I did want to say a few words because this morning my little brother died. And uh, this has happened in the last hour or so, just as I was hitting record for this podcast, uh, I got the call or I got a text from my older brother that my little brother had passed away. And so I'm a little solemn about that. I'm trying to uh, maintain a level of professionalism and you know not show my emotions, but um, I, w- I wanted to say a few words here just to memorialize this day a little bit. My little brother uh, was a drug addict uh, for most of his life, and he struggled greatly over many years. And the last couple of years, his health really started failing because of it. And you guys don't know this, but I have a background in uh, chemical dependency and psych. For 10 years, I worked in this field. Uh, way before I ever became a land specialist real estate agent. So I was very, very in tune to the struggle that my little brother was having. And I knew the day was coming and I just didn't know when. And uh, God came and took my little brother this morning. So his name was Michael Hogger and he was born February 8th, 1965. And he died today, February 7th, 2024. So Mike, I love you, little brother. God rest your soul, and I'll see you soon. Okay, guys. Well, um, thanks for listening to that. I just wanted to give that little memorial to my little brother. But today, uh, let's get into the show, and we'll talk about what we came here to listen. And that is, uh, we're going to talk to the owner uh, and founder, co-founder of Vitalized Seed System. And this is a seed system, uh, food plot system, that I've been using on my own property for a number of years. Uh, I'm in third year uh, on some of my fields, utilizing the actual Vitalized Seed One Two system. You're gonna, we're gonna talk about, and I'm on my fourth year in another field where I actually started the regenerative food plotting system. I started out with green cover seed, but now I'm into the uh, Vitalized Seed system on that field as well. But uh, it's a great system. I tell you, one thing that I've learned from that is uh, I am my my input costs are going way down. So the fertilizer you're going to hear, we're going to talk about that significantly reduced. I mean, I've cut my cost of my food plotting on my farm, Indian Creek. I think last year I spent less than a thousand dollars. I'm not using fertilizer, very little. I'm not nearly as much spraying. Uh, still spray a little bit if I need it. I'm trying to incorporate different methods to control weeds and uh, have those beautiful food plots that we always look at. And I'm really doing my best to incorporate the the six principles of soil health. So you need to go look that up. We don't talk about it today. Go look that up. Um, and it's working. It's my fields are looking great. 
I'm posting some of those videos on my website at uh, Facebook. So if you want to check it out, uh, do that. But we're going to have a conversation with uh, Al Tomechko. And as complicated as this sounds, it's really not that complicated. We kind of wrap it up at the end and, you know, good is good enough. and You don't have to be perfect. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Al Tomechko. I want to thank you for listening. This is the American Landman Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vitalize Seed. Cycle nutrients the way nature intended. The Packer Max HD Culture Packer Crimper. 100% of your seed goes down. 100% of your seed comes up. Landgate. Data, intelligence, and marketplace for land and its resources. First Products Grain Drills. Maker of the multi-drill. Quality, precision, durability. And lastly, acres.com. Explore and value land with confidence. And now, back to the show. And welcome to the show, Al Tomechko. Al, thanks for coming on again, buddy. I appreciate it. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, well, it's starting to be that time of the year where we're all starting to think uh, food plotting and managing our land, which personally is kind of my favorite aspect of it. I, honestly, it's become the favorite thing that I enjoy about my land. I still love hunting, no doubt, but something about making a plant grow out of the soil has got a hold of me. I'm sure you heard that before. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm right there with you. You know, there's there's just, uh, I think the more you get into hunting and especially uh, management, the density perspective side, um, whether you're wanting the deer numbers to increase or decrease, depending on your situation, um, there's a stress associated with that, you know, and, and I think we all enjoy the, the hunt. But, uh, you know, I know for, for me and, and my friends, you know, who are helping me manage the farm, you know, we, we were stressed and we felt like we really needed to reduce some doe numbers, you know, and there was kind of this well, everybody wants to shoot a buck too, you know, so there's this stress associated with like, hey, are we going to hit our doe quota here? And, um, you know, there that's it's a long season here in Ohio. And when it ends, you know, I, I really kind of sigh, uh, take a sigh of relief and go, okay, time to start pulling soil tests, start <laughs> running the chainsaw, you know, get on the tractor here soon, spread lime or whatever I plan to do. And um, I, I really enjoy, there's no stress associated with that, you know. Right. Um, and that really is enjoyable. So I would agree with you. That's my favorite time of year. Well, you're down in Ohio. I just, I just came back, not just, but a few weeks ago, I came back from a hunt in Ohio and man, no, there's hardly any snow down there. The weather is at least 20 degrees warmer and we're probably experiencing here in Northern Wisconsin, what is considered your normal winter, because today we might have 58 degrees and we're talking, this is, wow. this is February 7th as we record this and I, I texted you the other day, I was like, man, I don't, all my plots are, they're sprouting. The rye is coming alive. And I go out there and there, I found vetch and I found clover. And, um, I even found buds in the woods on some of the, uh, woody brows were like sprouting leaves. And I'm like, Al, what's going on? Is this good? And you're like, Hey, no, that's photosynthesis. <laughs> Enjoy it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're seeing the same thing here in Ohio. We're you know, super mild winter up to this point, at least. And, you know, one of the things is when you use really diverse crop systems, um, even if the deer eat it down to, you know, a putting green, let's say, right? Um, that rye and things like that are still going to green up. The clovers, et cetera, are just as soon as they get a little bit of warmth and sunlight, they're going to reach up, you know. Now, your brassicas, unfortunately, um, you know, if the tuber gets pulled out of the ground and consumed, there's just nothing left there to, to, to grow, you know, but uh, in the really diverse cropping systems, you know, you're able to kind of take advantage of that and never 
you never leave the, the slate totally clean, right? You never wipe it totally clean. You have something there for the deer. Um, but it's been so mild to the point where you know, I've talked to some guys and even oats have not killed off this year, which is pretty unusual. You know, even for a winter hardy oat variety um, for, you know, the Midwest and the upper Midwest for an oat to not die off is highly unusual. Um, so it's just been a very mild winter. And uh, one, I'm sure the deer are um, happy about, Neil, you've probably seen some of my posts, but, you know, I'm blown away, which I guess I shouldn't be, but the deer just never cease to amaze me. Um, if some of the body weights we're seeing this late in the year um, on our does even, you know, and I mean, we harvested a significant amount of deer in order to increase body weights, you know, across the farm. Um, and we continue to increase our plantings of food and TSI and doing all of these things. But I mean, some of these pictures, I just, it's just a doe, you know, some guys are just scroll through it, but I have to stop and pause and go, goodness gracious, that's a doe and a half. <laughs> yeah. Just the body size of them is, is tremendous. And I am, Certain there has to be some correlation to how mild the winter has been that they just have not burned the fat stores like they would in a really, really harsh winter. Well, all over the Midwest, I kept hearing, you know, the amount of acorns that were dropping. And I know in my farm and all the farms that I walk around here in, in Northwest Wisconsin, it was like walking on marbles. And I know these deer went into last, into the fall, through the fall, into the winter, uh, ha- fat and happy. I mean, they definitely gorged themselves on acorns because there were copious amounts of acorns in the woods, which was quite different than last year. Um, I don't remember the number of acorns, but man, the snow that we got up here was just, I think this time last year, we had literally had 85 inches of snow on the ground and now we got none. So the ability wow. to get to that, those acorns was significantly reduced last year. And God has given them a break this year because they are fat and happy. And uh, I've seen those photos that you put out. I took my cameras out of the woods, actually. Maybe I need to put them back out there. I know the deer are on my plots. I see the droppings. But, yeah, they're they're coming into the spring with a lot of body fat. And I expect that, you know, last year the horn size was down because of the drought. Um, people tell me at least. And um, this year I think they're going to be coming out of this winter in a positive caloric state. I think, I don't think they're eating up all their stores, which they're going to be expressing antlers quick and they're going to get big. I bet my bucks put on 20 inches. I wouldn't doubt it at all. Yeah. I think it's going to be a good, uh, next year should be a really good year. And I mean, anytime you have, um, reduced stresses, you know, it's, it's positive. I think not to get too off track, but I think it was you, I was talking to, um, there, there was like an old study and I think it was in South Texas and they took like, you know, well, what's the biggest stressor in South Texas it's drought, you know, and they ran it. It was like a really long study, like a 20 year study. And somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I remember in conclusion, what they were going to find is wet springs, which I guess was like the most typically the dry time, but wet springs allowed for more mesquite brush to sprout and, that has been directly correlated to the following fall, better antler growth. So they were able to draw like a really tight correlation there. And basically what they were doing is just taking the harshest time or harshest environment per year when it was reduced due to in that environment was rainfall, right? That was the most limiting factor in South Texas. And when they reduced that stressor, um, increased protein obviously was available for the deer to consume and then it increased uh, antler size. So it was pretty interesting. And I, I, I don't know if that was a Texas A&M study or what. It's been years, probably 10 years ago I read that. But um, like I said, somebody could probably correct me if I'm wrong. But definitely an interesting thought about how stress is correlated to antler and body size um, in white tails. 
Well, I know the stress has affected me because I'm looking at my fields going, man, there's no water on top of the ground in the form of snow to, you know, recharge the system. Um, we are getting rain tomorrow, but I, I often wondered, okay, does that also translate over to the woody browse? Uh, is, does that have less water content or is it less palatable, less nutritious Do the, do the trees kind of pull, pull back the nutrients and store it? I, I don't know. Do you know anything about that? I'm just wondering because what, what affects, I had a lot of guys say that last year, the bucks didn't seem to be as big. There weren't as many. Um, do you think the drier conditions affect the brows, which affects the antler growth? I mean, I think we could probably make a correlation there. Where it gets tricky is you start to get down into the rabbit hole, like MSU Deer Lab would be a really good for anybody who wants to dive really into this rabbit hole. Check out MSU Deer Lab, you know, strategic harvest systems. And you start to get into the rabbit hole that is uh, epigenetic triggers within whitetail deer and how that's expressed. So that's like a genetic expression. Um and it might not impact the deer in that short period of one year as far as antler expression goes. But if you have a lot of stressors on the landscape and lack of nutrition and lack of native browse and all of these things, how is it going to impact generational deer herds thereafter, right? So um, in their antler expression, regardless of actual genetic potential, but it's impacted because of how nutrition was available or not in prior generations. Mm -hmm. So it gets a little bit of a slippery slope. I don't know if I could confidently say within a six-month window, can we have a major impact on an antler growth in one year due to a stressful or non-stressful event? I don't know if I feel confident in answering that, but I certainly feel like there's enough research out there for somebody listening to this podcast goes, oh, that's an interesting topic. Um, definitely contact uh, MSU DLAB or by the book Strategic Harvest Systems and uh, read up on the epigenetic triggers and how they were able to show positive correlations to antler growth over generational periods when nutrition is um, maximized. Well, I'd probably make a great uh, internet Facebook post and let the, let the arguments begin. But I'm looking at the, at my land. I've been uh, walking around there, just kind of assessing things and my food plots looking great. Um, so let's get into this vitalized seed system a little bit, because I've been using it now. I think before we get on the podcast, I think I told you that I, I'm in my third year. This will be my third planting year on some of my fields, and it'll be the fourth year doing kind of the this regenerative nutrient cycling method of food plotting, which is a little different. And guys that are out there are thinking right now that don't really know what we're talking about. It's like, what the hell are they talking about, this nutrient cycling? So um, I'm going to let Al... Um, kind of explain the whole concept of the high, high level idea here. But for the listeners, I want you guys to kind of close your eyes. I want you to picture a monoculture food plot, big leafy brassicas. That's the typical, you know, food plot that everybody thinks are corn or beans, you know, kind of a, a monoculture type food plot that's planted only in the fall. But this system is a little different. So Al, why don't you take it from there? Talk about the one, two system. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. So, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I've been doing this on my farm for, for years and, and my story is, is kind of a long one, but, uh, you know, the, the long and short of it is I was tilling and we were able to buy some more land. And then I looked at, you know, uh, I, I pulled my soil test like I had done every year and just kind of looked at it on a conventional basis. And I remember one year I was up to, I don't know, playing at that time, maybe five acres of food plots. And, um, I sent it off to the local co-op to get me a custom blend of fertilizer mixed and 
you know, the cost came back at uh, like 2000 bucks in fertilizer. Just This is no seed. <laughs> this is just a fertilizer bill to do five acres of, of food plots for deer. And um, I said, there's there's got to be another way, you know. So I started really diving into alternative ways to, to do this, right, and to try to maximize soil health. And one of the things that I started doing is writing on a few different forms. That came a little bit later. I had one on QBMA form where I did Ohio Farm Tour, I think I called it, and uh, started getting some interest there. You know, I remember, gosh, you know, probably 10 years ago, I had monoculture clover fields, but I didn't love the draw monoculture clover had for whitetails, uh, particularly in the fall, like at least on my farm. I just didn't see, I mean, I saw a deer in the fields, but it was not like what I would expect, you know? So I started playing around with, well, I didn't want to kill because I learned about, you know, no-till and stuff. So I just broadcast a diverse mix right into it. And a lot of guys said, oh, you'll never get, that'll never work. You need seed soil contact and all this stuff. And I started playing with, well, what if I double the seeding rate, right? Or do one and a half the times, you know, the seeding rate of this. And all of a sudden I started noticing inside my exclusion fence, well, goodness, the deer must be in here because here I got a beautiful radish inside this clover field, you know, or, or whatnot. And, and hey, look, the grains didn't look like they took. Well, next spring I'd go back to the field and I'd have rye knee high and almost weed free clover, you know, and I'd go, all right, something's happened here. You know, I start, then start learning about allelopathy and all these things. What I found is that a lot of guys were really interested in what I was doing, you know, and, and uh, there was, you know, other people out there who, it started talking about a lot of that stuff too. And, and, uh, you know, at that time, Dr. Grant Woods was doing the Buffalo system. I didn't love the idea of, of monoculture, um, soybeans, you know, because in my experience, just not in, most guys don't have enough ground to plant a monoculture soybean. And I didn't, I mean, soybeans are a good crop. But they have a really shallow root system. So I started going, well, I want more diversity in my spring mix, you know, so I started reading all these books about diversity and microbiology and, and things. And really what I wanted to optimize was a simple system that's predetermined when you understand carbon nitrogen ratios, which is the rate at which things break down. Just think of it that way. That one planting would feed the soil and create a good thatch that would then feed the next planting. And by doing so through biology, we can reduce our need for synthetic inputs significantly. So I started trying this on my farm, I don't know, six years ago, maybe. I mean, I was doing tri many trials before that that I just described, but really using our one-two system about six years ago, um, before, well before starting the company. And I haven't had to put synthetic fertilizer on my fields in that time. So I haven't used an ounce of synthetic fertilizer since I got a bill for 2000 bucks that I decided not to purchase, or uh, a quote, I should say. Um, I never did use synthetic fertilizer. But what was interesting is I wanted to learn more. So I started pulling, continuing to pull soil tests and here my available phosphorus and potassium and things in the soil were increasing. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because where is it coming from? I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not putting anything on these fields. Um, I did use lime to, to balance pH and base saturation of the soil, which is another discussion for another day. But um, other than the lime, I, I wasn't putting anything on the, on the field. And then I started taking tissue tests, which is basically above ground biomass tests, right? And I'd send them into the labs and here my, um, Nitrogen, potassium, et cetera, all the way down to your micronutrients are really healthy in the plants. And the plants, of course, look healthy too. I'm going, well, where is it coming from, mm -hmm. right? Biology in the soil. Uh, so I just wanted to simplify it, right? And, and the way I tell guys is like, there was so much information out there and there's a lot of great companies. There just was nothing that I felt confident enough um, to use on my farm, you know? So uh, I was, you know, making my own mixes. And then, of course, uh, 
finally there seemed like there was a market for it to to figure out how to work out the logistics to offer it to people. Um, and that's why we have, you know, I think the most diverse mix on the, on the market. Um, and it's, you know, 14 species in the spring with a well-balanced carbon to nitrogen ratio. We call it nitro boost, feeds the soil, pumps and into the soil, um, has a variety of uh, low carbon to nitrogen to high carbon to nitrogen plants. So some are going to break down quick. Some are going to um, work as a thatch covering to suppress weed. And then of course our fall mix is 16 species that you plant right into that nitro boost if you have a no-till drill or if you can do a broadcast and roll method um, or spray and broadcast method that works really well, you plant it right into that and that let that nitro boost feed that next planting of carbon, which is a really good deer hunting plot, but it's also a really good soil builder um, or soil enhancer as well. Yeah. I would say probably four years ago, I came across Grant Wood's videos and um, he was, I'll give him the credit, that's where I started. Uh, and that Buffalo system and his story... Uh, you know, relating back to the Great Plains and had the the 14 feet of topsoil and the story of the buffalo walking across the plains by the millions and lightly, in a sense, tilling the soil with their hooves. There used to be, they, you, you've seen pictures of this, Lewis and Clark, you know, paintings, whatever, like a black swath of turned over soil for miles as the buffalo came through. But at the same time, defecating, urinating, salivating, crushing, terminating the diverse plants that are on there. And then obviously within a couple of days, it starts to sprout. And then the next crop comes in and that system of over and over and over had the best topsoil, the most fertile soil on the planet almost in that natural method. I thought, you know, that just kind of makes sense. Of course, I don't have buffalo on my farm and I don't even have cattle on my farm, but he started recommending you know, utilizing cattle as a, as your Buffalo in a sense and rotational grazing actually had a, a short discussion with uh, Colin Rayom on a prior conversation, just a couple episodes back where he does that rotational grazing. But I thought, all right, well, I kind of like this idea because I mean, I'm looking at my spreadsheet Al from 2020, uh, 2020 is when I started it. And I look at 2021, I started actually calculating the amount of money that I was spending in my food plots, just like you said, my total food plot pot, uh, plot costs looks like it was around twenty seven hundred dollars in twenty twenty one. I remember my wife having a cow when I when she saw the bills of what I was spending. I started thinking the same thing. It's like, man, I want to have you know, I want to have these beautiful food plots, but the amount of money I was spending on it was just. I I, I thought to myself. If I don't figure this out, I'm not going to be able to do this because my wife's not going to tolerate it. And frankly, I don't even want to put that much money into my food plots for deer. I'm sorry. But uh, but by 2022, after I started the system, I reduced my input costs down to $1,710.59. And uh, 2023, for some reason, I don't have a number, but I remember last year, I think I was down to about $700. So it's come down significantly. And the way I did it, was um, I didn't have buffalo and I didn't have cows and I utilized what equipment I had. I did get a Packer Max and a crimper. So I, I finally invested in a crimper and I used my disc a little bit. And I just did a post on this. If you saw, I'm, I think you saw it. And if people want to look yep. for it on my Facebook page, um, I do have a, I do have a planter now. I have a, a no-till drill from um, First Products Green Drill, but last year that broke. So I wasn't able to use it very much, but I did this 
scratching method. And I forget what the guy, some guy coined the phrase. Uh, do you remember what I wrote on some about scratch and seed or scratch and plant or? Yeah. I think what did he say? Scratch the seed in or something like that. On yeah. Phone? Something like that. Did you scratch the seed in? And I thought, Oh, that was a good term, which is exactly what I did. And so for the listeners, if you could picture, you know, this field, I'm, I, I've had a couple rotations of vitalize uh, the carbon load in there. I planted it in the fall. And I think I initially started off with, you know, I, I use a lot of glyphosate because I used to watch another real popular land management guy. And he would talk about this all the time, you know, spray it with glyphosate and 2,4-D and then come back in and spray it again another time and then come back in and spray it again the third time. And by the time you get to the fall, after you've been spraying all summer long, you pretty much have dead thatch and it's even start to break down. You got you throw your seed on it, pack it in, and you'll have a great food plot. And, you know, your brassicas will come right through that. And so I kind of did that, like a lot of guys putting down buckwheat and, and you know, it worked, definitely worked. But gosh, my glyphosate bill was going through the roof because a two and a half gallon jug of glyphosate last year or last year, year before was like 135 bucks and spraying, you know, 10 acres of food plots three times, man, it was expensive. And I thought, I just not, I can't do that. And not only that, I didn't want to do that. I just whether you want to talk about, and if you believe in the lawsuits of glyphosate, that's just for another story. I just frankly didn't want to put that stuff on my fields. And so I started looking for ways to not do that. Um, I Last year, I definitely, I cut my glyphosate back a lot. And I don't know what your recommendation is, but I think I was down to two ounces per gallon or maybe one ounce per gallon even. And I was mowing. And on this field that we're talking about, after I sprayed it once lightly, and then I Use the cultipacker. Actually, on that one, I mowed, actually. On another one, I cultipacked. Um, I mowed that field and laid that thatch down. And then I came in, and I think by the time I was planting out, it was probably August 11th, if I look at the date. And I found, for me, in northern Wisconsin, that's the first of August is around where I got to be if I want to get a 90-day window before I get my first frost. But I did exactly what he said. I scratched the surface of that soil. I came in, and I planted it. And I got pretty good seed to soil contact, but then I didn't get any rain forever. Um, and when I finally did get rain, it grew. But what I found with this one-two system is I am not turning over my soil and I'm not drying it out. I tend to have drier soils or I'm not baking it if I had clay-based soils. And I've always got that covered. So I think it might be beneficial because I get a lot of discussion about this? Like, how are you planting it? Like what, when I sell it to guys, Al, they always want to know. So what do I do, need to do to plant this to make it work? And it can be, it can sound really complicated, but I've been, I boiled it down to this, just get seed to soil contact and the better seed to soil contact that you can get without breaking that soil, without exposing and turning it over and killing all the biology, the better. And I don't know if you, I mean, do you want to take them down that path? Cause I know you have a planner. I have a planner. We both probably have discs. Yeah. We have tillers. I mean, answer that question. Yeah, I, How do I plant? I mean, it's, you, you know, you hate to give the answer. It depends, but <laughs> yeah, it does. It, does. You know, it, 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 it depends on the grower's goals. So when I, I go through this conversation probably 15, 20 times a week, I have one really good customer. He just was texting me right before you and I jumped on the line. He goes, man, I love this beer mix. And he's just an awesome guy. He's in Southwest Ohio. He's all, he goes, this is the second shed I found in, in carbon load this week. And uh, he had 18 deer out in his field uh, yesterday. And he actually lives not far from where you were hunting, you know, maybe 
Um, he's about maybe an hour, hour and a half north, uh, east of there, closer to the Ohio River, but uh, a little bit higher up on West Virginia side. Anyhow, he's a gentleman who I've become very good friends with. He's a great customer to utilize, but he and his wife, they live on their farm. They do not want to use herbicide, period. So he doesn't have a no-till drill. He doesn't want to use herbicide and he's converting. I believe it was a fescue pasture, um, but don't quote me on that, but I believe it was a fescue pasture. So this comes down to, well, what options do we have? The, you know, the option is, well, we all know we want to reduce tillage, we want to reduce disturbance. That's a, that's a no-brainer. But I also don't want to be frivolous with this person's money, right? I mean, their, their money, their time, their fuel, et cetera. So I'm not going to sit, sit there and go, well, just through, you know, double or triple the rate of, of seed to put down on your field and, you know, something ought to grow. It's probably not going to grow through a fescue patch, right? There's going to be a ton of nitrogen tie up there. It's going to fund the competition, et cetera. So I asked myself, well, what do you have as far as equipment goes? What are your ultimate goals? And what ended up working out for him is he has a tiller or a disc. I can't recall. Um, it might have been a disc. And he did basically what you did in that picture. He did a very light setback and he did increase the seeding rate. I forget exactly what, but maybe by, you know, maybe he threw an extra acre down on, on for whatever he, he bought. So say he bought three acres, maybe he put four acres of seed down. It wasn't a huge increase, but it was, it was an increase. And he had a tremendous stand um, in a high deer density of his nitro boost. And then in the fall, now that he had had a good stand of nitro boost, he went in, he brought cactus carbon load, and then he bush hogged the nitro boost off. And although he, um, well, he was really impressed with the nitro boost, but what he's been impressed with in the fall, is he's like, you know, I didn't, uh, I wasn't sure initially how well that would work, but as I just told you, he had 18 deer in the field last night. He's like, they're just, they're in there constantly, they're eating, they're, they're he's finding sheds, et cetera. So it's worked out really well for him. For others that want to do, ab, you know, they have a no-till drill or they have a crimper or they're okay with using herbicide. Well, then we go down that path, right? If somebody's like, hey, I want to use herbicide or I'm okay with using herbicide or I'd like to use it, but I want to limit it over time. You know, what, what's, you know, what, what I don't want to do is till, right? It's a, it's a light soil. It's on a slope. There's erosion risk, et cetera. I really don't want to till. What are my options? Well, in that case, it's like, well, if you're okay with using herbicide, let's use herbicide. Let's terminate what's there. Let's increase the seeding rate. Let's consider a mycorrhizal fungi inoculant possibly so we can get that established in that soil profile since you're not going to be killing. Let's get it going now so the fungi can propagate and you can work to produce better uh, stable soil aggregates in that sandier soil on that hill where you risk it of erosion. And then let's get the system going that way and use mowing or roller crimping or weed whipping, whatever you have to terminate and then plant your fall crop into. Um, you know, so we could go down each of those paths, but it really doesn't have to be very complicated. Um, I've had some guys just mow. Like if they have a clover field now, they'll mow real, they'll seed and then they'll mow real low just to try to cover that seed up with a little bit of the thatch from the clover and let whatever comes up, comes up. Um, so, so those are the things that you do want to be cognizant of, um, is your goals, you know, is, is, are you willing to use herbicide? Are you willing to use tillage? What tools do you have and kind of take it from there so you can come up with the best plan? Yeah. I, you know, I haven't talked to a guy yet that says, heck no, I love pouring chemicals onto my, uh, uh, land and it's expensive. But that's kind of what you're, that's kind of what we do. It's like, that's kind of like the expectation, I think. Spray the hell out of it, kill it, till it, till the hell out of it, pour a bunch of fertilizers or liquid amendments or whatever. I mean, it's like a friggin' chemistry project to get food plots growing. And I've had conversations with some of my friends that are into the food plotting businesses. And they're like, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to grow deer or 
are you trying to, you know, grow worms? I'm like, well, actually I want to do both. I just, for me and, and every, and it teach their own. I just thought there's just got to be a better way. Hey guys, you guys have been hearing me talk about landgate.com for a while now. I've been using the software and I'm really liking it. I'm using it for new clients, existing clients, and even previous clients as a real estate land specialist. And I'm telling you, it's got applications for all of them. When I bring a new client, a Landgate report, along with my uh, market analysis and the other tools, it really, really sets me apart because I'm bringing them data that they've never seen about their property. I'm educating them and it elevates me from somebody that's trying to just come there and get their listing and sell their property to a guy that's actually partnering with them, bringing them data about their land because they may not actually want to list their property at the moment, but nothing's better than leaving a great impression. So check it out for new clients. It could be a great tool or an agent trying to get a listing and make a relationship. Landgate.com, great data, intelligence, and marketplace for land and its resources. So what I started doing- We can talk about- Yeah. Let's just talk about that briefly. So I just finished a book recently, um, not the one I posted about actually, but a different one by Nicole Masters. She's from New Zealand, I believe, either Australia or New Zealand, grew up on a farm. New Zealand has been growing deer, by the way, in pens and stuff for many, many years. You know, back, you probably remember 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of clovers coming over marketing for the deer world. Uh, And that might have been under the, I forget what brand that was, but they would call it like New Zealand clover, New Zealand brassica, right? right? That was a big thing. A lot of that was, was formed through trials and stuff in New Zealand. Anyhow, it's also a big cattle industry and, you know, red stag and stuff there. Um, she's, I don't know what PhD, PhD scientist or something like that. And does all this stuff all over the North America, as well as, uh, in Australia and New Zealand working with, with cattle farmers. And, you know, a couple of things she talked about, which I really liked her book, uh, because she did a good job of bridging conventional agriculture to regenerative agriculture. She didn't say like, don't ever use spray again. Right. But she's like, if you absolutely have to use glyphosate, you know, then, or, or some other herbicide, like. Well, one thing they've had really good success with, and I tried this actually a couple of years ago with, with good success, um, was using some humix with the glyphosate to help mitigate. One, they found that you can get a better kill off with not needing the maximum rate. So I always suggest following the label because we don't want What's, what's humix? With. I don't know what that is. So um, humic acid. So if you just Google humix, um, it's, a, it's derived from leonardite, which is uh, – essentially is naturally occurring in the soil um, through pressure and time, right? So it's not quite coal, um, but it's, it's humic-based substances, uh, which if you think of like humus uh, aspect of organic matter, it's super stable. Just think of it as super stable organic matter, I guess is the best way to describe that. But there's soluble forms. So like we use in our seed armor and in our seed feed, um, and even in the, the fish fertilizer that we came out with, we add humics in there because it has a very high CEC, which is it's a, basically its ability to hold nutrients. Um, so it acts as almost as like a chelator, which is basically, um, I'm trying not to get this too complicated. It's basically it's a, a ability to hold things in the soil so that they're not leaching out to so like nitrate and things like that. So when you hear of sometimes farmers will say um, they're using a nitrogen stabilizer, uh, a lot of times that's ba- based in like a humic-based substance so that it's allowing that nitrogen to be more stable and stay around um, for a little bit longer before it leaches out of the soil profile. So it can get, you have a higher rate of uptake by the plant, right? Um, so what they found though, is it, it also has um, 
germination impact, so it can increase seed germination rates. It's just used. That's why we, we use it on our seed feed and seed, uh, seed armor. Um, <clears throat> it can also help in uh, actual soil quality. So soil tilt is a term that they throw around. Um, and then it also has, uh, it can have like growth hormone inhibitors uh, in it, uh, impacting the plant growth um, in a more of a natural way. But it's uh, it's a really good good product. It's a naturally occurring product. Um, and there's a lot of science to go into humic and fulvic acids for people who are who are more interested in those. And there's a lot of science being developed. But you can buy liquid humix in, I mean, probably off Amazon, right? And uh, it'll make something look dark, almost like a molasses. It's, it's a dark natural color. Um, is dark, and you would add that with your glyphosate to help in the uptake of the glyphosate. And uh, you can reduce the amount needed. So something she talked about, she's like, you know, we recommend when farmers are using this, they're adding, and I don't recall the rate, but they're adding humix to the tank. Um, and they're seeing a, um, they're still within the range, I would imagine, because you don't want to have glyphosate-resistant weeds show up. Um, but with that being said, they are. Uh, able to get away with a little bit less chemical and a better absorption going into the plants. Um, so you're getting a faster, more uh, efficient kill. So that was one thing, you know, that she talked about, which I thought was a really fascinating thing. Another big item that she talked about in a lot of these things, a lot of these discussions, you know, or, or inoculating the soil with, um, you know, compost or manures or fish fertilizers or whatnot and stimulating that biology and you know you go going back to your question of like well why you know why not just do it the traditional way right uh why not just throw phosphorus out there you know hey we need phosphorus let's throw it out there and and the reason is is because one it's not that sustainable um two it's not that efficient you know i mean there's a, a a boatload of undeniable science on phosphorus just for talking purposes phosphorus uptake or lack thereof by the plant, if it's thrown on top, it, it simply is not worth. And even if it's worked into the root zone, the roots have to be like in contact with it. They're just simply not getting it. There was a farmer out of Illinois last year did a study. He had been broadcasting phosphorus and potassium on Illinois soils, so relatively heavy soils, not overly heavy, but he had been doing that in a no-till system. Now, this is a gentleman who pays his mortgage, right, using growing crops. And he had been doing this, and he just was like, well, something doesn't seem right here. So he sent in the soil test, but what he did before he sent in the test, he took one inch of each level of soil. So he took an eight-inch probe, and he said, okay, top inch, and he separated that out. Inch two, separated that. And he had each inch analyzed individually. Over 15 years of broadcasting phosphorus and potassium, 15 years of that fertilizer was sitting in the top two inches of soil. Mm, That's interesting. Now, it's a lot different if you have a planter and you're putting it in a two-by-two you know, two inches off and two inches as far in a corn plant where the plant is literally it's right in where the corn plant's root zone is going to be. That's going to be a much more effective uptake, obviously. But most people are not getting that. So why are worms important? To go all the way back full circle to your your question is to like, well, you want to grow worms or you want to grow white, white tails? Well, you're going to grow a lot better, healthier crops without talking about all the microbiology just from creating an, a, essentially an ecosystem for arthropods, which worms fall under, right? They're shredders of material, of organic material. They're going to shred higher carbon nitrogen. You have a corn stalk or rye grain or a turnip bulb laying there. You know, worms and, and other arthropods are going to go through. They're going to shred it, right? And they're going to defecate and they're going to make tunnels and they're going to do all these things. One of the other things that's really cool is worms will come up to the top, let's say at night, and they'll grab some rye grain, right? They'll drag it back down into their burrow, and sometimes they consume it and defecate it out there. Well, now all of a sudden, all of that nutrients that was sitting on top is naturally getting incorporated into the soil. 
You're not breaking up soil-stable aggregates, both chemical and biologically created, because you're not running a tiller. But you're naturally incorporating them through nature's way of doing so, which is through arthropods. And obviously, there's a lot of microbiology you can't even see, which we could go down that route on a different discussion. But just from being a worm farmer, as you you, uh, mentioned it, that's what you're doing. So now when you grow those plots for wildlife, you're able to have better phosphorus uptake in more natural forms. You're better to have these basically deposits of organic matter that are right in the root zone for those plants to take advantage of. And that's why we focus so heavily on the one-two system and trying to maybe not eliminate tillage for some because, again, it goes on the growers' goals. But we're so very focused on trying to maximize soil health and, and conserve soil because that's what we can do is once you start conserving soil – you start to rapidly see benefits to not only the soil itself, but also the crops that you're growing um, out of that particular medium. So contact, you're kind of talking about context a little bit. And I just had a conversation with a guy um, last year, he got started and he listened to what I said. And, and I said, well, how are you going to prep your fields? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm going to not, I'm going to try not to prep them because you said, don't do that. And I'm like, well, it kind of depends. Like, like go back to what you said, Al, it kind of depends. But so a new guy using the one, two system and he started in the spring, he's going to put in nitro boost to begin the system. And in the fall, he's going to follow that up with carbon load, which then greens, you know, they eat all fall into the winter. And then the spring, it's a fast green up. And then, you know, you got the system going. Then you just repeat it. One, two, one, two, one, two. A guy that's going to start a virgin field today in another month, whatever. How do you describe what he should do? I mean, I know every field's a little different, but can you give a way that generally is probably going to be the planting? I mean, I have in my head, I like to hear you verbalize yeah. it. Sure, sure. So, um, I, I mean, obviously there's there's going to be some dependence there on uh, or variables on, on uh, equipment, you know, yeah. but let's just use a scenario. I mean, if it's, it's a one acre field, um, let's say they can rent a no-till drill from their um, local co-op, you know, uh, and let's say it's it's currently existing at the fescue pasture, okay? Um, you know, most guys are going to go in there and they're like, I want to limit, you know, herbicide use, but I'm okay using it once. Um, you, you know, you're not going to roller crimp your way out of a fescue pasture. At least I haven't seen it, you know? So unless you can get cows in there and let them browse it all the way down to the point of no return, um, or you're going to kill it or you're going to spray it. So, you know, those would be your options. So we, we would determine how are we going to kind of reset that particular field based on the grower's goals. Um, if they're okay with spraying and if they can get a no-till, I would spray it and I'd drill in the first time. Right. And let I'd me ask you, there. let me ask just a clarification question there. So most guys I agree are going to use chemical burn down. Uh, there's guys here that don't even know what that means. So what I did and what I've done is I use glyphosate and I just measured it in at two ounces per gallon of water. And I kind of figured it out. I mean, there's ways to calibrate your sprayer and you'll know how much exactly you can put on. But my one 25-gallon sprayer for me would do about an acre of land. And this year, on one field that I'm trying to get going, I am going to put some 2,4-D in there. Uh, and maybe I'll do this humix, but I was going to put crop oil. Uh, do you have any advice on that method? I'm going to burn it down with glyphosate, 2,4-D, and crop oil to get things started. So a couple things on that. Um, 2,4-D does have a residual, so you need to be cognizant of that as to when you're using it and how long you're going to plant. Right. How long um, is that know, residual? It'll, and what you're saying is it'll lie dormant in there and it won't let anything grow for 
couple of weeks or a month or how long? Yeah, I think I think it's typically 14 days, but as always, please read the label. Yeah. Um, and it also, I'm sure, can depend on soil type and things like that. Um, most glyphosate, not all, has a surfactant already mixed in with it, which is, that's what crop oil um, is okay. used for. Don't have to add it. So yep. you, you, I wouldn't recommend spending the money on it. Now, 240, I'm not familiar with it. Honestly, I think I've used 240 like once in my life. Like I just have never... Um, I, I've never been one who's like really wanted to expand my knowledge of, of herbicides because I've always been more interested on limiting it. Trying to get off them, sure. Yeah, or, or at least making the ones that I have to use more efficient, you know, and um, we have to use some for, you know, our KSI work on the farm because you're just, again, you know, tree of heaven or Atlantis, as some folks would know it, it's a son of a gun of a tree and you're just not going to, you can't cut it down. It actually grows more rapidly, so you have to use herbicides. Um, but other than that, as far as plant and food plots go, I've been pretty much only using glyphosate if and when I need to. But I know a little bit enough, or I know enough about it to at least give a little bit of information. That is, I would be cognizant of one, is there sur- uh, surfactant mixed in already? If not, then you're going to either want to use um, crop oil or, or something similar, bean oil, some other surfactant. Um, another thing that people often don't do, which is something that you can get a better kill off if you're using glyphosate, uh, ammonium sulfate, they sell it at Tractor Supply. I'm sure they sell it. We don't have Fleet Farm, but I think you all have Fleet Farms up yeah. there. Um, they probably sell them there, um, et cetera, is ammonium sulfate in a liquid form and or a spray grade form. Um, that actually just helps to basically tie up hard water ions. So glyphosate is a chelator, which means it wants to grab onto. Basically, it means it wants to grab onto um, and hold on to stuff. So that's why some guys have said in the past, oh, it'll um, it'll tie up uh, micronutrients in the soil because it's a chelator and it chelates to them and it makes them you know non-available to the plants. Um, you know, I think Dr. Huber out of Purdue had, had come up with that. I've heard it's been refuted or whatnot. I'm not 100% sure. Haven't read all the studies to tell you one way or another, but it's something to be cognizant of. Well, AMS in your water, your water can have what's called hard water ions. Um, the AMS, so you put water in your tank, you put the AMS in there, let it dissolve, and then put your glyphosate in and then fill your, finish filling your tank up um, or some version thereof. And that way you make sure that any of those hard water ions that might chelate to your glyphosate, making it a little bit less effective, especially if you're using like a well water or something else with hard water, uh, get tied up so that your glyphosate is more effective. Um, and then, of course, if you want to use uh, humus or humix, um, you can do that as well. So there's a few different things to keep in mind there. I probably gave you more information that you were looking for, um, but there's a few different things that you can keep in mind there. Um, and then, of course, like I said, the residual, keep that in mind. The other thing, too, with spraying um, 2,4-D is why I'm not a real big fan of it unless it's really needed. It's because the ultimate goal is to keep a living root in your soil, right? And if you're using glyphosate, you could spray, and I've done this before, um, just this past year, I actually converted about three acres of fescue pasture to uh, fescue and orchard grass to a really beautiful food plot. And I was able to drill and spray the exact same day with when just using glyphosate. Um, if you're using 2,4-D, you're not going to be able to do that. So now you're going to have a couple week period where everything's dead as a doornail. You have no photosynthetic capture happening. Your microbes are not going to be getting fed through root exudation. Um, they might be consuming some of your thatch, obviously, but that is a downside, in my opinion, um, versus if you're just going to do a quick burn off and then have immediately have seed in there, um, you're going to have a faster turnaround to have a living root in the soil and prevent erosion and all the other things that we talk about. So just something to think about when you're thinking about what type of burn down, if you are going to go the chemical route, um, just something to think about there. Well, I've got a large field that tends to be sandier soil. This is why I brought up the 2,4-D in the spring. 
I'm, 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 you're solving my problems or hopefully. Um, and I'm probably like a lot of guys. I mean, I, I think I have studied this and I'm a little bit more passionate about it than most people and not nearly as much as you, obviously. But I got this feel that I want to kill it. And what I dealt with last year when I did put the nitro boost in there is I did spray it with glyphosate. I used two ounces per gallon. I sprayed it. I got a good kill. And I went in there and I drilled some of it when until my drill didn't function, I had to stop. And then I broadcast the other. And then I, it was such a large field with a four foot cultipacker. It didn't work. It just wasn't efficient to go. I'd been out there for two days going around in circles, trying to get it with that four foot cultipacker. I needed a bigger piece of equipment and maybe I'm trying to plant too much, but that's what I dealt with. But then I didn't get any rain. So the idea of rain pushing the seed down and getting seed to soil contact didn't work as good as I hoped. Although I did film this and I sent out there for people to look at my page, you'll see a field of nitro boost and I got the sorghum growing. It did okay, but the weeds came back. Uh, they came back, even though they were dead, they came back. And I, and obviously there was just dormant seeds in there that I killed the plant, but the dormant seeds were laying there and now they got sun and they sprouted. And I probably got a 60% weed, 40% nitro boost combo in there. There was food and the deer were using it, but it really wasn't what I was hoping for. So this year I thought, all right, I'm going to, I am going to, I'm going to do it once. And I bought some 2,4-D and I bought glyphosate. And I was, I, what I read was a one ounce and one ounce combo per gallon of water. And that's what I was going to do. So I was going to start off with a super burn down and I might start in April and I'll give myself a good 30 days. Cause I'm not going to plant the nitro boost until soil temperatures are probably 65 or greater or 68. What, what do you, just real quick, what do you I reckon? typically say you know, 55 or greater, um, okay. as long as you're seeing, especially if you're seeing an upward trend, um, you can kind of typically, if your soils are hitting 55 degrees, look at the 10 day forecast. If you're seeing, Hey, you know, next Wednesday, you know, it's Wednesday and next Wednesday, it's going to be 75 degrees. And you don't see any major fluctuations. Like by the time you get that, that seed in the ground, um, with that upward trend, you can kind of get that seed to jump up out of the ground and outcompete okay. some of those weeds. So that's my, my, uh, opinion on that. All right. So 55 ish or a little bit better, you go ahead and plant and then hopefully get some rain. And that was my problem last year. I didn't get any rain. And that's my kind of what I'm going to now is that soil was already dry last year with 85 inches of snow. This year, there is zero snow on there. And I'm just concerned with getting that seed out of the ground and get it started. If we have another green or excuse me, dry spring into the summer, those darn weeds are going to come back. So I feel like if I don't get on top of those weeds really good the first time to get that field established, then I'm going to be chasing my tail. Um, if I get it established, like my North field, which is where the video with me scratching with the disc, that's a couple of years. I got great results there and I'm probably down to, you know, I, I said in the video, that small clip that you could see that I probably got 75% of the weeds dead. 25% are still there. Some broad leaves are still there. And when that field grew, it's, it had some weeds in it, not a lot, 25% or less, I would say. So it's doing fine. So I think the system has started there. And then when I crimp and lay that stuff down, or if I mow it and, you know, work, keep on top of the weeds with mowing or crimping. Um, and then the allopathic effect of the, of the rye, the chemicals that the rye exudes will suppress. I think I'm good to go, but that new field establishment or a small field establishment, I just feel like I got to burn it. 
once and I want to do it good. Well, I think you bring up a really good point in that these things are fluid and variable. And it's why we preach and preach and preach, probably get tired of me talking about the soil test. I mean, it's one of the, and not only soil testing, but getting your, your base saturations, your pH, your micros, your macros, if you don't understand it, but at least if you have it, shoot, shoot me an email, you know, Albert at Vitalize Seed, and I'll be happy to review it with you and give you the best suggestions. But that's why every field we can't, it's one of the things that I, reasons I wanted to start Vitalize Seed, and I think one of the reasons we gained so much traction is that you know, people follow them like, hey, I, I could kind of use this blanket advice on this field and this field that used to be in ag, let's say. But man, over here, when we cleared a field out, boy, we struggled, you know? And it's like, well, well, why? Well, yeah, because blanket, you know, generalized advice might not work there. Well, why? Well, because it wasn't treated like an ag field for 30 years. You know, it, it needs some work. It needs some biology. It needs some That's stimulation. And, you know, so I think that there's, there's well, the whole point that you bring up is like, the point that some fields might have a different prescription than others. I did a video on our YouTube where I'm sitting behind behind the house, uh, you know, there at our farm, and, and I said, uh, it looks like bare dirt. It looks like I killed it. Well, it's not. It, we, we sold off some red pines, and we put in a big food plot, and then the rest of it we left as uh, hopefully oak regeneration. Um, well, you know, for my son, right? maybe much later in my life, I'll, uh, I'll get to see it at least. But uh, good Lord willing, right? But the, the field looks like it's dirt. And a couple of things I took away from that. One, if I didn't put an exclusion fence up in the hill, I would have thought that there was a major soil fertility issue. Um, despite it being previously pines at a low pH, the carbon load grew fantastic inside the exclusion fence. I mean, absolutely fantastic. Knee, knee high. Actually, some of the grains had got to the point where they would have uh, uh, got to a seed head stage if there was no browse pressure. Outside the fence, it was eight down just about, I mean, it's amazing because the deer continue to eat because every time we get a warm day, that rye and clover and stuff pops back up. But I mean, they ate it down to half inch, you know, from the, from the soil surface. Um, so I talk about, well, that field is certainly going to need more attention in a different prescription than say my big pipeline field that I often refer to that's been in the system for many years. It just starting off had a, had a naturally higher organic matter levels. It had pretty well balanced pH and base saturations. Like that field's kind of set to drill down and, and put on George Strait radio and, and forget about it. You know, like drive off once you're done planting. There's just not a whole heck of a lot that needs done there. On this other field, a little bit smaller, a little bit closer to deer, um, deer bedding, um, lower pH, et cetera. There's going to be a little bit more attention that, that needs to be done. One of the things is going to be a little bit higher planting rate on that particular field to help offset some of the uh, the deer browse due to the proximity to bedding of that particular field compared to some others on the farm, right? So there's these little minor changes that can be made across the field um, or across the farm to maximize each individualized field. So in your situation, it's like, all right, hey, he wants to spray, let's just say that's one acre or two acres. But you're not going to fill the sprayer up and say, okay, now I'm going to go spray all 10 acres. Well, why are you doing it? Well, I'm just resetting everything, right? That in and of itself is a huge win. And I know for me, if I looked at myself 10 years ago, 15, 10, 12, 15 years ago, I certainly would not have had that same outlook as I do today. Where it's like, yeah, some fields, all right, I'm going to reset it with an herbicide. A lot of fields, it's 80 plus percent crops that I want in there. I'm not worried about a little bit of ragweed popping up. I'm going to let that figure it itself out, let the deer browse it. I'm going to, you know, drill through it, mow it off, drill through it, try to use a roller clipper, whatever it might be as a physical termination, or just drill through it and leave it and move on to the next field and then evaluate that. Yeah. I remember you said that to me. 
That's, you know, honestly, that's the hardest struggle that I have is I have, even though I've done this for a few years and, and I'm slowly getting fields are better and better every year. It looks better. I still have that. Like, I want it, like, I don't want to have to like over-intellectualize this, become a chemist. And I just want to till it and kill it and plant it and have these beautiful food plots pop up. And I'm getting that. But the vitalized system, in my experience, is it's the best part about it is I get to watch this transformation uh, and not have the big bills of fertilizer. I think I used 100 pounds of fertilizer. I'm looking at my spreadsheet, 100 pounds last year. That's it. And I'm doing 12 acres. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I saved Amazing. a ton of money. Um, but on the other hand, and I've said this to some of my clients, I said, I know what you're picturing in your head when you think in food plot. And you're not going to have that with this. It doesn't look like that. This is so diverse. You got to like go in there and like get down on your knees and like look down in there and take a, I did this, I did this biology uh, thing in high school. We took a piece of yarn and I made a, like a one by one square. I said, just in your, in, you know, take your foot and go one by one and make a square. Look at what you see in there. And I do this on every one of my videos. I go, okay, here's vetch. Here's a clover. This looks like a different clover. There's, I don't know, it might be um, sun hemp here. I think this is, oh, there's a little brassica. Check that out. Oh, here's a crimson. This, I think this is rye. And I mean, the, the amount of diversity in that little block is, is so much greater than the other, you know, popular mixes that are big, leafy. We have that, but I even look at the pictures that the guy send in and go, I, I go, well, my field did not look like that. And I've seen pictures of this huge bulbs, big leafy brassicas did really good in yeah. that soil. And then another guy, his looks different Then mine looks different from that. And like my, my soil, because I'm building it because it's Sandy, I, the grasses seem to do really well in there. The clovers are doing pretty good, but the brassicas aren't doing as good. Um, I don't get as much uh, pea production, but every field looks a little different, which is kind of cool, right? Because yeah, absolutely. Every field's different. And honestly, what you're what you're describing, which I don't, I know you you're looking to actually increase doe numbers on your property based on previous conversations. Yeah, I am. But right. just just for others listening, because what you're describing, it could be one of one is a soil fertility thing, which is the benefits of highly diverse mixes, is that um, you're always going to get something to grow. I mean, heck, I had some spilled on the driveway; it started growing in my mulch bed. You know, I'm like, oh, there's there's vetch and and barley and <laughs> all this different stuff. Well, but um, one could be related to soil fertility. The other item that it could be related to is, as well as deer browse, uh, specifically with brassicas and peas. Um, that's why I'm a huge fan of these diverse mixes. You know, if you go in and plant, I mean, there's a lot of guys right now that are showing monoculture brassica plantings and going, yeah, look what's left. Every post you know, out and, there. <laughs> and in some pictures, some pictures you go, well, they had some nice bulb production or, or whatnot. But from somebody, you know, the soil nerd in me looks at that and goes, oh my goodness. From a compaction perspective, there's no no soil covering. You have a little bit of rot, rotting brassica bulbs, which is like a little bit of a organic matter going back into the soil, right? But like you really don't have anything to green up and photosynthesize. So you're just setting yourself up for this continued cycle of, well, what's going to be in there in the spring? It's going to be all weeds, not 20%. I mean, it's, it's going to be all weeds. So you're going to have to then go in there and terminate that. Now, I get it. Some guys just want to use a brassica mix, and, and that's okay. But, I mean, it's something to keep in mind, right? And that's why we try to make sure that there's a good balance between – we have almost as many pounds of brassicas in an acre of our mix, balanced with, with 
legumes in the carbon load. I'm talking about specifically your balance with the legumes, balance with the grains as what you would get if you bought a monoculture brassica mix. You know, so that's something else to keep in mind. I mean, that's why in the right environment, uh, Mr. Dwayne, we've shared a lot of his videos from uh, northern West Virginia. You know, he's just blown away with the, the Nebraska production he's gotten on his fields. Mm. Uh, now, he's done a tremendous job managing deer density. They have had a they had a really, really high deer density there. Um, he has done a tremendous job of following soil recommendations. I mean, all the way down to we've worked with him on what types of lime should he be putting down, like Dometic versus um, high calcium. You know, I've talked about that in the past. I mean, he's followed all of the recommendations to a T. Um, and because of his deer density, we've talked about, hey, let's bump up the seeding rate just ever so slightly. You know, so instead of 45 pounds to the acre, I forget what he was at in the fall, maybe 60, something like that. But you see the results of it. I mean, he, he has absolutely fed every deer in the neighborhood and then some, has bulb production and clover, vetch, uh, grains are all still there as well. that are going to jump out of the ground this spring, continue to feed the soil, continue to feed the deer and give him weed suppression when he goes in and plants his, his nitro boost, right? So that's really the ultimate goal and some of the benefits of, of having that diversity. Uh, and we try to use, obviously, the freshest seed possible, the best quality seed possible, um, the best varieties of seed possible. Um, and, you know, obviously, the results speak for themselves. We've been really fortunate to work with so many great people, and um, the feedback has just been tremendous. Well, last year, I noticed that uh, my carbon load, I don't know if it was a late maturing um, because of the dryness, but um, I wanted to terminate that carbon load because the rye uh, jumped out of the ground. Just like you said, it was a real early green up. So right when those deer needed it the most, man, as soon as, as soon as they made a crater in the snow and sun started warming that soil and those worms and biology started were doing their thing, my fields opened up and they got greener and greener. And then eventually by May I had fawns bedding in the rye. I had, it was almost like a field of switchgrass only it was, it was rye grass, you know? And, um, mm -hmm. but I kept waiting for that dough stage so I could go in there when those if people don't know the dough stage is when you pinch a seed and it's kind of milky doughy. That's when you want to terminate it. I didn't really get to yeah, that. And that phase. happens just, just, I just wanted to mention uh, that happens in rye grain, which is what we use. We don't use, I know you, I knew what you were doing, but I don't want a listener to think, Oh, they use rye grass in their mixes. Right. We don't, we use rye grain just so for, for um, clarity purposes, but yeah, the dough stage um, and kind of waiting for it to get to that, that perfect time. Here's my question to you, Neil. Why does it need to be perfect timing? Well, like what happens if you get 75% termination when you roller crimp it yeah. versus, versus <laughs> nine? Cause you're never, you're never going to get a hundred percent. Um, the USDA has a study. Anybody wants to Google it. I think I've shared it on our page before, but it's, uh, you Google like USDA roller crimper or physical termination study. It's like a three page study and they took roller crimper flail mowing and then like a power roller, which is like a walk behind roller crimper. And they compared it on multi-species cover crop, red clover and hairy vetch, I believe. Um, red clover is kind of inherently a difficult clover to uh, to terminate. Just it doesn't get real like filled with lignin or anything like a crimson clover does, and it's kind of a lower growing clover. Anyhow, um, they went through there. I think the highest rate of termination that they got with those, and this was in a somewhat controlled study. You know, it's not like they were doing ten acre fields. I think it was like ninety two percent, maybe. Um, and there was some variability between styles and types. But you're never going to get 100% termination. Well, that's a great. So my take to that is like point. just it's all about perspective, right? And like for me, like I've taken fields before and literally not even roller crimp, just drilled through them and drove off. 
guy's like, well, aren't you worried? I'm like, worry about what? Did the deer going to come in and eat the, eat the sorghum head? Well, you know, I thought, like, I, I, thought I had to have a grass mat. Well, I mean, it's, it's helpful, but you're going to have a grass. You're going to have a thatch layer because you're not, you're certainly going to kill some. But if you have a little bit stand back up, is that that big of a deal? Yeah. Because honestly, what's probably going to happen is a turkey is going to come by or a deer is going to, and they're going to eat the head right off of that plant. And it's already close to the, it's just going to naturally fall down anyway. So it wouldn't be terrible you know? if that ride didn't terminate all the way. And I still had some that live in and eventually I'll get a seed head that the turkeys or birds will eat, but. Yeah, and here's another thought I had. I was talking with a, a friend of mine, um, and he's really into regenerative agriculture. And he and I were talking about this idea of, you know, doing multiple crimping. So basically, like a lot of guys, you know, a uh, uh, frustration with some crimping that guys have is exactly what you've talked about. And even um, flail mowing can be really, really good. Rick Clark does some good stuff out of that for anybody interested in that Farm Green podcast. Um, he's a huge organic farmer out of northern Indiana, and he talks about using flail mowers for uh, – reducing uh, or for a terminating, excuse me, multi-species cover crops. But what about this idea? What if you go in and you drill and crimp that day? And then you come back two weeks later, you're already going to have a thatch coming that your seedlings are going to be small. They're going to be very pliable at that age for the most part. And just do an acre. Don't do all 12 acres because I haven't tested this yet, but it's a theory that I've had. And then you run that crimper over it again for anything that did pop back up. Now do you get that extra, do you get, do you get 80% of that extra 20% that you killed in the first time? I mean, again, I don't think you're ever going to get a hundred percent total termination with, there's just too many variables with the physical termination method. But again, it's just that how can we think outside the box? And now you got a little bit more sunshine, you know, a little bit more vitamin D, you got to listen to your favorite radio station, whatever it is. And, and you didn't have to use herbicide and you're out in your farm enjoying your land. Yeah. So is that such a bad thing? Well, I think the reason why is because I'd seen it on TV. You know, it's got to be this, yeah. it's got to lay that stuff down. It's got to be down. And I kept going out there and looking at that standing rye going, it's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. And I got all the way into like, I think one of my videos, I looked at the dates last night, it was July 11th. I took the Packer Max in there. It worked like a charm. I went around it and I laid it all down. And and then I, I was like, okay, well, shoot, it's, you know, it's July 11th. It's no rain in sight. It's, if I throw out the Nitro Boost, it's not going to do anything. It's just going to sit there and I'm the mice and the rodents and the birds are going to eat all my seed. What should I do? I mean, I had this, I had it down. I think I called you and I said, well, I killed it. I terminated. It's all laying down, but should I plant? And you're like, man, I hate to see that you don't have anything growing in there for a month. And that's what I opted to do. And I waited till August. And then I went in there and I broadcast in the field that I'm talking about the Taj Mahal plot. I have video on that on my Facebook as, as well, or, um, just the last couple of weeks. Um, and then I broadcast back into it and I did my fall planting again. So I completely skipped the nitro boost. Um, not because I wanted to, just because the planting conditions just is, I just felt like I was going to be throwing seed down and it wasn't going to do anything. Um, but I had great termination, but you're saying, Hey, why do I need to have great termination? It's <laughs> a good point. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think you have to have perfect, you know I mean? When the time's right, it's right. You know? And, and again, if, if you're, for, for I wanted those TV that, plots, Al. I, well, and we have to be careful because um, everything you see on TV, uh, there's let's just put it good. There's a lot of editing <laughs> that goes that goes into stuff, you know. And we don't truly know on everything that's shown on TV, um, you know. Just like the people don't know everything that I've shown, right? Like they don't know. Well, is he really doing this or that? Like you don't know, you know. So my take is that. Just because you see a field that shows 100% termination, somebody used a physical termination method, you know, 
did they really, you know, did they really wait for that entire field to be optimal? Because it's hard with multi-species cover crops. And that's why it's like, even with spraying, sometimes you don't get 100% termination. Like, let's put it that way, right? So I think that that just comes down to the grower's goals. And sometimes it's reasonable. Well, I want absolutely perfect termination. Well, then maybe they're, they're going to be somebody who says, but I'm going to use glyphosate every year to get that, you know, or get damn close to it. But if you're looking for physical termination, um, I have never been as disappointed in a field that I've went and just drilled through or something similar to that um, at broadcasting mode off, et cetera. I have never been really disappointed in the results. If you don't kill, pretty, if, you, if you don't kill that seed though, you're going to have a lot of volunteer rye coming up and can it, is there a risk that it's going to get too much, which is another reason I kept looking at the dough. I go, man, I don't want this. I don't want this doughiness to turn to a hard seed because then I'll have a viable seed. So I got to kill it. I got to. I, I haven't seen it happen in, in that period of time. I've seen guys say that they let rye go. Like if they plant in the fall, they'll let it go all next to all the way to the next fall. And then they'll mow it off and then they'll have rye again. Um, and that's in a monoculture of rye. I've never seen it. And if you're rolling it and crushing the stem, you're certainly hurting the plant, whether it totally kills off or it tries to stand up or not. And then if birds and turkey and deer are eating the heads off of it, um, I, I've never seen it become an issue. Actually, I'll go so far as to say there was a year before I started the company where I had carbon load uh, planted. And that year, for whatever reason, I was very limited on my time. So I literally just planted green into it with a broadcast spreader on my tractor. So I went in there and just whirly birded my nitro boost into the standing carbon load. And then I like wasn't able to do any work that summer um, at the farm. And I had so many deer using those fields and eating like crazy, their heads down because they had the cover of all the rye grains. I was going to say the cover, and then, yeah. And then the next fall, I went in and planted uh, carbon load again. And I ended up shooting a five and a half year old off a beautiful food plot um, that fall. And I never had a big issue. So again, it's like, what, what's the grower's goals, you know, and, and do you have to have perfect termination? I think we sometimes don't give plants enough credit yeah. for their just willingness and ability to, to grow. I mean, and we've seen it. I mean, we, we all, we all are subject to having our opinions formed based on what we see on television or YouTube or here on podcasts. I and, know. and my biggest thing is like, I learn more every single day. You know, I have an area in my garden, I'll give you a quick example on this. And I, I don't think we want to drag this out too long because we'll lose people. But like, I have an area in my garden. Most people who listen to me know, homie, he really loves the garden. I always use cover crop. I use carbon load. And you can just, you can see, I used a weed matting last year. I didn't want to use any herbicide in my garden or anything like that. And I used a weed mat last year. And I grow a few hundred tomatoes from seed every year. And then I collect the seeds. I'm like, you know, pretty nerdy about it. I'm really into that. And uh, I had a beautiful tomato garden. Me and my son go out there almost every day in the summer and pick tomatoes and peppers and stuff. And we, we really enjoy it. And one of the things that I found is, is my son had more interest and more interest in going into the garden is, uh, you know, we were checking probably more frequently than we needed to. What I noticed is with the weed matting down, in the areas where I don't have, didn't have a living root, right, in between the rows of the tomato plant, there is very clearly compaction compared to the area where there was living root and where those tomato plants were growing. So I share that with you because you can see where my cover crop did not come in nearly as good, almost perfectly, where the rows are formed compared to where my tomato plants were. And I share that with you because now I'm in a situation where, well, how do I mitigate that? Do I want to just go in there and kill it? 
or can I think of a way to do both having my garden crop and can I do intercity row cover crops like I've done in the past at my old house? I had uh, cover crops growing in between the rows. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the weed mat down around the tomatoes. I'm then going to cut rows for walking paths where there's actually bare, bare soil, if you will, for my walking paths. And I'm going to plant nitro boost in those rows. Now, I'm not going to get the full life cycle out of those rows because I'm certainly going to have to get in there to pick tomatoes, but I'm going to get a few weeks of growth, right? Before tomatoes start to really get red and I need to get into the, the garden to pick them. At that time, I'll take a mower, either a push mower or a hand sickle mower, and I will cut down the nitro boost. So the sorghum and Sudan and things like that that are in there are going to have a positive root mass expansion by volume because that's what happens when you mow those species. And then the legumes that are in there are going to either die off or try to regrow, try to fix more nitrogen and pump that right back into the soil. So I'm literally going to have like a living mulch in between the rows to combat compaction going forward, right? So that's just a really outside the box way of thinking, right? It, it, most people say, oh, just till it all up, break up the compaction. Well, I don't really want to do that. So you have to sometimes come up with a unique way to solve the problem in which you're, you're working it. And sometimes that's, you know, a, an issue of scale. Uh, but sometimes it's not, Neil. You know, sometimes you can make that work. And um, that's just one example of some of the things that I do to try to make it work for me. Well, I go back to, I go out there and I think I have this fear of not having great food plots again. And I, what you said kind of resonate, resonated with me. You probably don't give the plants enough credit and the deer are still going to be there, even though it doesn't look like that TV food plot that every picture on the internet now looks like. And it's going to be fantastic. You just, even I, even though I see, I know better, I think that's my biggest fear because I do have great food plots. There's plenty of food there, more than my deer can eat. And I need to not stress out about it anymore. So that's probably well, a here's the other, great Well, here's point. the other thing you have to keep in mind is like this, this concept, although it's not totally new, it's been used in agriculture for, for a long time. And one of the things that's really interesting is that I read, I don't know how many times a year, Neil, but I'm sure you can, you can uh, agree to this. Guys will say, man, my deer just don't eat brassicas. I don't like brassicas because my deer just don't eat them. I have never had somebody tell me that in the, in the vitalized seed system. And I'm like, well, why? You know, and I don't have an answer. I, I have a couple hypotheses. I've got, right? like, I got a hypothesis. Like, 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 why is that? And I believe that it's more nutrient dense because yeah. the plants are communicating together yeah. and they're getting up more nutrients naturally. And it's, I mean, like I said earlier, the gentleman who sent us all, sends us videos all the time because he's just blown away. He's so happy. One, he's like, I've never been able to grow food plots like this. He's like, the tonnage, he's like, I was trying to grow, I forget how, like, he plants a lot, like 40 acres of soybean. And he's like, I wasn't able to, to grow this. And he's like, I'm seeing more deer and getting more tonnage out of these fields and more ball production than I've ever been able to get, you know? And he's just like blown away. And I'm like, well, there's no magic pill. I mean, you've done a lot of work. You know, he, he's followed soil test recommendations. He has managed his deer densities where they, when they were really high. I mean, he's done a lot, you know, there's no magic snake oil, but I think from an attractiveness and a probability perspective, that's exactly why those deer just continue to come back to those fields. And I don't want to say they can't wipe them out, but I feel pretty damn confident that, with that high diversity, they just can't clean the slate. They just can't do it because as soon as they bite off a rye grain, some triticale is going to sprout a little bit more. And as soon as they bite off that, some clover is going to happen, you know, going to jump out of the ground. And it's just in this continuous cycle. By the time springtime comes, you have this living fat, living mat 
it then would be turned into a batch that you then cycle those nutrients by planting your nitro boost into it, right? And just keep the system going. And I think that's one of the most important things for guys to consider is um, that makes a big difference is not just one planting focusing on soil health. Uh, there's a lot of that talk. Like, oh, this is a, a soil health mix or something. Like, it's, it's not. It's a long-term plan of subsequent planting that's going to help us capture carbon and be more efficient and cycle nutrients and not have to rely on fertilizers um, as heavily and or at all because you're using biology. Right. And that's going to take time to stimulate and rotate and cycle, um, as we like to say, nutrient cycling. Well, a lot of this land, that's probably a great point to end on. A lot of the land that we are planting on maybe isn't ultra, uh, uh, perfect soil. Some of it may be, have been worked for 100, 150 years and we're trying to bring it back. And if we just get out, out of the way of Mother Nature, she has a way of correcting things. And I do think the deer recognize healthier, you know, quote unquote, sweeter soil where biology is working versus us trying to fix everything and create this beautiful plant that looks good. But N, P, and K are, are three things that we pound into them. And they just don't taste as good, and the deer know that. So I think a, a natural approach that corrects over time. I got to keep reminding myself, and I'm going to keep doing yeah. so. So Al, well, okay. Hey, let me let yeah. me finish one story. I'll tell you quick. Is we had a guy. He sent a, a video in uh, or a picture in. Um, I shared it the other day, but this wasn't the one that was actually really good. He had sent me one earlier this year. I should have saved it, but he's a really good customer, actually out of South Carolina. Crazy high deer density, and they're allowed to bait there. You know, so he's a big pile of corn. And he sends me a picture. He goes, what is in this mix that I planted? And I'm like, oh, gosh, is he upset about something? You know? And then he sends me the picture. And he goes, because they're not eating this big pile of corn. They're all behind out of bow range eating, eating in the field. And there's like you know, 50 deer in this field. They have a really high deer density. And I just joked and I said, hey, they're concentrated selectors, man. They know what they want. Right. And I'm not saying, of course, deer are going to come to a corn pile. But I do think that spoke volumes to just allowing nature to, to run its course, let those deer figure out what they want. And they certainly uh, love that carbon load. They love the nitrogen. They love that diversity and healthy soil. So, um, hey, I appreciate the time, buddy, and you having me on. It's always a pleasure. Yep, I agree. Well, I enjoy it all the time, and there's just so many things that we could talk about when it comes to Vitalize Seed. But, hey, if people want to order directly from you, they can do that. Uh, you want to give out the site, how to get a hold of you. They just want to go yeah. online and buy it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Vitalizedseed.com. Um, we are taking pre-orders for Nitro Boost now. going to be shipping around March timeframe. We also have dealers all over the United States. Neil is our dealer in uh, northern Wisconsin. So please check out that page because our dealers are going to have better pricing for you. Um, and one other thing I want to mention, uh, we did come out with a couple new products. We do have a fish fertilizer plus humus for those guys who are interested in doing a, you can either do a ground soak with that. So you're soaking it right at the time of planting just to help stimulate microbiology, or you can apply the foliar spray. Again, just a jump start. There's a bunch of amino acids, NPK, micronutrients in that particular um, fertilizer. It's all natural fish fertilizer base. Uh, we also have our seed armor, which is included in every single bag. Um, it's inside the bag of seed. So all you do is you open that up like the old Cracker Jack box, reach in there. You coat the seed with that. It is a fine dust. So if you're doing a broadcast spreader, I do recommend you might want to wear a mask just like you should if you're broadcast spreading uh, lime or anything else that's dusty. Um, if you're using a drill, obviously that's not an issue. That's just a broad spectrum inoculant. It covers every single legume in the mix uh, as well as has a humic base to help with seed germination. And then our last new product, um, which this does not come in the bag, but this is something we do sell as seed feed. Um, and that's an all-natural NPK 
humic, calcium, uh, et cetera. It's a powder, and it's simply used to help put, as we know, things like phosphorus are not very available in the soil. You put it right on the coating of seed, um, and then when you plant, that way those nutrients are right there for that young seedling to get started, and you're putting down, obviously, a little bit of powder versus a couple hundred pounds. And we've seen really good results. You can check our YouTube out at Vitalize Seed and uh, see those results there. We did controlled studies last year, and the uptake in nutrients and tissue sampling was pretty astounding where we use seed feed versus not. So those are some new products, and uh, check us out. If you're interested in being a dealer, send us an email as well at the contact us page, vitalizeseed.com. Join the movement. Well, thank you very much. Once again, you're a great American landman. I appreciate it. You're the mad scientist when it comes to soil health. You're a great uh, contact. I really appreciate coming on the show. Thank you so much, Neil. All right, buddy. We'll see you. Yep, take care.